Jennifer, it's your dad. I just wanted to know how everything was going and how you are doing and how Jim is doing. Uh, I, 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 uh, I just got your, your phone number from, uh, from Giacomo. I was calling you on, on your old phone number. I got to get it straightened out on my speed dial. Well, anyway, I'll talk to you later, honey. Give me a call when you can. No big deal. Bye-bye. Promethean Project. A Mortal Reckoning, Episode 7, Treatment Due to the fact that Jim burst onto the hospital scene in a spectacularly critical condition, he was sentenced to inpatient chemo treatments. The docs had to monitor his progress closely to track how he was tolerating the assault. Chemo poisons kill all rapidly growing cells, good and bad, wiping out everything in their path like Sullivan's campaign. Hospitalization allowed for ease of intervention if Jim's body chemistry went out of whack in response to the treatments. Kidney and liver function, the mass in his chest, platelets, electrolytes, there were so many things to keep track of. He was already starting from a position of weakness because of the lymphoblast pool party in his mediastinum. Immunosuppression was another result of the beatdown. Our hypervigilance around cleanliness and minimizing Jim's exposure to folks became good practice for the looming COVID pandemic. The treatments were administered in phases, and each phase had a cycle. Jim's first phase was called the induction phase. The process began with the oncologist writing orders for a specific poison cocktail. In this case, it was Donna Rubison and Vin Christine. We called it Donna Robinson and Vinnie Christina because it was easier to remember and we could blame those two jerks for making Jim feel crappy. Jim had already started on the dexamethasone steroid a couple days before. The chemo prescription would get sent to a special part of the hospital pharmacy for filling. We envisioned a dim, dusty lab with hunchbacks, cauldrons, witches, and maniacal Dr. Jekyll-like dudes toiling away over the noxious concoctions. Everything had to be timed properly because the chemo medication expired relatively quickly, I guess. Or ate through the container it was in. I'm not sure which. When the poison was ready, two nurses dressed in hazmat suits would bring in the bags of chemicals, hang them on the IV pole, and connect them to Jim's pick line. The process kind of reminded me of pumping gas in a car. The nurses carefully checked each other through every step of the process. It was remarkable how efficiently and expertly the nurses worked together. If this is what we had to go through to fight cancer, at least the agents of delivery were really good at what they were doing. The nurses would leave him be while the noxious chemicals dripped through his pick line and into his veins. Once the poison was in, they'd unhook him, and from there on out, we'd all manage the side effects together. Children who have this disease get blasted with higher doses of chemo, referred to as the pediatric protocol. Though it sounds horrible, it makes sense because kids are just cell growth factories. Still, seeing how the doses affected Jim... It really broke my heart to think that little kids are subjected to an even more rigorous regimen. Nursing staff. The nurses, individually and as a collective, were outstanding. They were kind and compassionate masters of their profession. As we talked with them, we learned that many were driven to work in the cancer center because of their own personal experiences with the disease. Their empathy was genuine. Over the course of our stay, many spent time chatting with Jim, the subjects covered a wide range of topics. Italy, Rochester, art and music. He was always interested in other people's family origins and how they became nurses in the cancer center. 
Jim was a talker, and he found plenty of willing conversationalists in the nursing staff. We can't escape the fact that death is always walking with us. The halls of the cancer center are a prime spot for the Grim Reaper to rack up steps. The nurses were well aware of death's presence. Their ability to respectfully coexist with death added a divinity to their nature. They did everything they could to help Jim thwart the advancing reaper, but when everyone's best efforts didn't manifest the outcome we wanted, they remained steadfast, compassionate, and emotionally available. They supported us and bore witness to the awesome power and great mystery of life. In Jim's final days, their divine grace enveloped us as we prepared to say goodbye. Jim had deep gratitude and respect for his nurses. The Rounding Team The rounding team was made up of doctors in various stages of credentialing, nurse practitioners, and nurse managers. They would come in every morning anytime between 9 and noonish. This is where the whole zoo animal feeling settled in. To reiterate, the rounding team was a bunch of strangers led by a resident and an attending physician who came in to check on my half-naked husband, The resident was our dedicated physician for the duration of their rotation. This doctor in training wasn't necessarily interested in becoming an oncologist. Rotating through the different departments was a requirement of their training. Their role was to keep an eye on Jim and provide any necessary medical interventions to stabilize him during chemo treatments. The resident opened the session by presenting a summary of Jim's health status to the attending while the others stood and stared at us. After the brief update, the resident would double-check with Jim to make sure they were on the same page and that they didn't leave anything out. The attending spoke next. He or she would ask Jim questions about how he was feeling and about his bodily functions. What was particularly infantilizing was the laser focus on Jim's bowel movements and urine output. Every time he peed, he had to use a handheld urinal and save it for the nurses to measure. Jim's urinary evacuation performance was a key indicator of his kidney function and other internal workings because there's an awful domino effect of adverse issues if one little thing goes wrong. We understood the necessity, but the knowledge didn't make the hyperattention any less embarrassing. Everyone was good-natured about this personal invasion, but it's dehumanizing to have to engage in these conversations with a group of strangers, some of whom are half your age, while barely dressed. Seriously, one morning, while you're just waking up, Imagine ten people piling into your bedroom, pulling off your blankets, and scrutinizing your body. Once the two doctors were done asking questions, they checked his vitals, paying particular attention to his heart and lungs. Occasionally, one of the other people in the group would add information to our sessions, but most of the time they observed quietly. The meeting would end with a Q&A from us. They'd do their best to answer our questions. We sidestepped the big question that was top of mind. Will Jim survive? As you might imagine, that's as hard a question to answer as it is to ask. We feared the question would open the door to a bumbling collection of words that would feature discomfort and ambiguity as our audience tried to marry science with hope. So we avoided asking. But it nagged at me every day, if not every five minutes. Rather than suffer that exchange, we saved our prognosis and treatment plan questions for our team captain, Dr. X. We'd have to wait to connect with her because she worked full-time in the outpatient center, which meant we had to catch her before her day started or find her on breaks between her other patients and responsibilities. The communication gap between us was exasperated by life events. When we got back from the ICU, for example, she was out sick for a week, then took a week vacation. It was tough because she was the only one I really wanted to talk to. The residents were hardworking, kind, and clearly wanted to do a good job. 
The one we interfaced with the most was a decent guy who seemed to genuinely care about Jim. Despite their good nature and commitment, my treatment team preference would have been to have the nurses, Jim's oncologist, and maybe one other oncologist or nurse practitioner with an oncology specialization. The cancer center doctors all knew Jim had a bad cancer, and they must have suspected he had limited time. To use corporate healthcare speak, our experience was student-focused, not patient-focused. Spousal Contradictions Jim, as a patient, was docile, which is not a characteristic anyone would have thought to assign to my husband. He had a lot of energy and enthusiasm for life. Jim was passionate about his multiple endeavors, and he didn't shy away from disagreements. That's a polite way of saying he could be a strident, argumentative SOB. I found it disconcerting when his forthright, live-out-loud personality settled into one of quiet acquiescence. Without fail, when the doctors came in on rounds and asked him how he was, he'd reply in a chipper voice, I'm fine, how are you? Rather than, I have fucking shitty cancer, I feel sick all the time, I can't crap, my body hurts, I hate feeling nauseous and dopey, this bed is shit, I hate your TV, I'm terrified of dying, I don't want to leave my family, I have no idea if any of this crap is going to save my life, and it just plain sucks. I mean, he didn't have to go that far, but somewhere in between, everything's fine and everything is shit, would have provided a more accurate picture for the doctors. As his advocate, the situation plagued me throughout his care. When something was bothering him, I'd call the doctors and nurses who would come in at my behest, only to be told by Jim that everything was okay. He'd play his symptoms down like they were no big thing. Ugh! It was so frustrating. Often, he would do this while I wasn't in the room. I'd only find out later when I thought no one was following up. The nurses would tell me, We already talked to him about it and he said he was okay. This led to one of the few arguments we had in the hospital. Exasperated, I told him. I look like a crazy person. You aren't going to get the care you need if you keep telling everyone that everything is fine. Jim and I communicated volumes without words. That's not to say we didn't talk. No one could accuse either of us of being short on words. It's just that when you've been in a close relationship with someone for so long, you share more silently than you realize kind of like how trees communicate with each other through their root systems. Our marital telepathy let me know, for example, that the intense focus Jim received from the rounding doctors made him incredibly uncomfortable. He was a humble man who never liked being the center of attention. Based on his love of performance, one would not infer that this was the case. But when you perform in a band, you're enjoying a shared experience, while your audience is focused on the ensemble as a whole, not just you. In this situation, the intense attention left him feeling embarrassed and ashamed. He felt like he was a bother to all these professional people, so he downplayed his symptoms when he responded to the doctor's questions. He was reluctant to accept the fact that he was their work and the reason they were all there. I also knew that he was scared and felt powerless over his disease. He was sincere when he asked the doctors how they were. It was his way of normalizing their interactions to dilute his fear. When the doctors asked him the battery of questions during rounds, I needed to gently coax him past the polite, self-effacing responses and into honest answers about his condition. I stood by and listened as the conversation ran its appropriate course. It was his body, his cancer. He had been stripped of all control. I had no interest in adding to his feeling of disempowerment by interrupting or correcting him. 
But what Jim was relating to the doctors and what he was actually experiencing often were two different things. Between his fear and the opioids, clarity wasn't always the point of order. The doctors knew I was there all the time, so they would look at me while they talked with Jim to see if my body language was supporting what Jim was saying. I appreciated that tacit understanding. Unfortunately, though, there were times I could feel a bias against me from some of the professionals who were new to us. Maybe they had come across one too many women who were fluent in womansplain, or had suffered the aggression of domineering spouses who spoke for their partners. Don't get me wrong, over 30 years I made my share of mistakes in this area. I am no sinless princess here. However, as I mentioned earlier, Jim and I learned a lot together over the years about how to see and hear each other. Working through all our relationship issues over the years prepared me for these complex communications. When Jim was finished answering the questions, it was my turn to tell the doctors what I knew to be true. Like the resident looked to me for confirmation, I looked at Jim while I talked, checking in with him to make sure I was getting it right. Jim was scared. He didn't want to be there. He wanted everything to be fine. He wanted the doctors to be people he met in the bar, people he was just having a chat with. Jim could not stand the fact that he was sick. To some degree, I think his mind was pretending he wasn't. February 4th Field Trip Two weeks and three chemo treatments later, things were looking up. The original complications caused by the disease were under control. The chemo treatments seemed to be working. There was optimism in the air. Our oncologist granted Jim a hall pass, allowing him to go home for the day. The care providers all knew how important home was to us. I'm not certain, but I think for insurance purposes we could only leave for a couple hours. I got the impression that the insurance company would stop paying for inpatient care if they found out that the patient was out of the hospital for some legally determined amount of time. Despite the short time frame, it was really great for Jim to be home, sitting on our couch and petting the cats. He actually wanted to do the dishes. Watching him engage in this household chore made me realize how important routine tasks are to the infrastructure of our identities. Being home together turned our anxiety dial way down for a few short hours. Unbeknownst to us at the time, it was a reprieve before the next storm hit. Valentine's Day. Our hearts were set on achieving outpatient status the following week, which would get Jim home in time for Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day wasn't an occasion we ever really paid attention to as a couple, but this year it seemed like a nice date to mark Jim's return home. On February 11th, with hope in my heart, I started packing the few creature comforts I brought to Jim's room in order to get ahead of what we thought was our impending discharge. I decided to sleep at home that evening to get a full night's rest in anticipation of Jim's move home. The nights I wasn't at the hospital, I left strict instructions for the staff to call me if anything happened. That night, he experienced excruciating pain in his ribs. Though it was cause for concern among the night team, no one called me. That morning, none the wiser, I called Jim before I left the house to see how his night was and if he needed me to bring anything in particular before I came back. That's when I found out he was in pain. By the time I got there, he was crumpled on his bed in the fetal position. The night crew ran several tests on him to rule out a repeat of the issue that landed him in the ICU. While doing so, they tried a couple of medicines to mitigate the pain. Ironically, they started with Tylenol which is like bringing a butter knife to a high-power assault rifle fight. Thank goodness someone had the presence of mind to kick it up a few notches with a stronger pain med. Still, whatever they were giving him wasn't working, so by the time I got there, he was in agony. 
Later that morning, the doctors figured out that the cancer indeed was fighting back. The chemo wasn't working. The news sucked the air out of our lungs. They started a pain management regimen and gave him more of the steroid inflammation fighter, dexamethasone, to give him some relief. Dr. X instructed the team to continue with the current chemo regimen as planned while she researched a stronger chemo recipe. They had to keep using the fire hose they had until they could arrange for a water cannon. This was a crushing setback, and we really didn't know what to make of it. We were already saturating our piped-in hospital air with the trepidation steaming off of our bodies. By the end of the week, we were desperate to hear that something was going to work. Rather than waiting to talk to Dr. X, we met our attending physician on rounds with all our ramped-up fear and asked her the question we had been avoiding. What happened if the new chemo regimen didn't work? She looked us dead in the eyes and said there was nothing more they could do. Now, I've likely mentioned ad nauseum that I'm a practical person. I want to know what I'm dealing with so we can plan accordingly. However, this doctor was way out of line for dropping that on us without any support from our oncologist, from a therapist or a social worker, anybody who had the human sense to have a longer, appropriate conversation with us about prognosis and options. It was like her fucked up mic drop moment. She just matter-of-factly, in the middle of rounds, while we were completely unprepared, told us, there are no other options. There's another one who needed a good hard slap. How can these professionals be so fucking stupid? When we finally got to talk to Dr. X, we told her what the attending said. She was disturbed and asked out loud, why would she tell you that? Of course, Jim and I couldn't answer that question. That's for the cancer center's process people to figure out. Then she assured us that there were other options if this next chemo recipe didn't work. I can't say we were awash with relief. We came away from that conversation with something more like cautious optimism. While Dr. X worked on a new concoction, the rest of us spent the week managing Jim's pain and waiting for him to take a crap. For the pain, they started Jim on the oral form of the narcotic Dilaudid. That didn't do much, so they escalated the Dilaudid to an IV drip. The hospital used a 1 to 10 pain scale to calibrate the dosing that would bring Jim some relief. One represented the least amount of pain and 10 the highest. I estimated, for example, that the morning I found him in the fetal position, he was at a 10. Jim's self-dismissing behavior became a big barrier to narrowing in on the course of action. This was one of the most frustrating experiences of my married life. He would tell me he was in pain, not words my husband was given to use. Then the doctor would come in and ask the 1 to 10 pain scale question. Jim would rate his pain at a 3 or a 4. 3 or 4 doesn't typically require opioids. Jim was definitely in greater pain, but for some reason he wouldn't use a higher number. Was it a generation thing? Would a 23-year-old man say he was at a 9 to Jim's 3? A circular problem started where the resident would prescribe pain medications based on Jim's lowball number. Then he'd get behind the pain, meaning his pain was greater than what he was being prescribed so it would reach an intolerable level. The resident wasn't able to manage Jim's pain with what they were prescribing, so they'd have to catch up with more pain medication to wrestle it under control before they could settle down to a consistent pain management regimen. If you can't control the pain, other parts of the body get affected. Your heart rate goes up and other systems in your body get stressed. It's a delicate equilibrium that requires close attention. 
The attempts to get the medications right was an everyday, all-day frustration. After several days of this back and forth, I scrapped the useless number scale. Somehow I had to find a way to develop a shared definition for pain levels that accurately described Jim's pain so everyone had a clear understanding of where we were. I ended up making a picture chart to replace the hospital's number scale. Each picture had a pain description using words I heard Jim use over the course of the week. Then I added numbers for the team. As an artist, Jim communicated best through pictures. The most important picture was my depiction of Jim in the fetal position, like he was the night the cancer was fighting back. I gave that picture a 9, knowing Jim would never admit to a 10 in any circumstance. The break in the clouds came when a new nurse came on rotation. She pulled me aside and promptly threw the resident under the bus. She said that Jim needed to be seen by the palliative care team, that the current team providers shouldn't be yo-yoing Jim, trying to guess at right medicines, timing, and dosing. Initially, fear struck my heart when she said palliative because I thought palliative care was specifically for people at end of life. She explained that the palliative team specialized in pain management and that they can be brought in to collaborate for anyone's care. She said she was going to tell the resident, but wanted me to know first. Relieved, I thanked her and supported her direction. I got the impression that this disclosure on her part served a dual purpose— She genuinely wanted to include me in on her thought process that would likely help Jim, and she wanted me to know that she knew better than the resident. I really appreciated her insight and recommendation. I didn't think her approach, criticizing the resident to a patient, was very professional, but Jim got better care as a result. In hindsight, this situation highlights the fact that our experience was student-focused, and it makes me realize that while we were in the hospital, we didn't have a coach at all. We had an oncologist writing the strategy, but that physician wasn't part of the day-to-day. There wasn't any one present person overseeing what was happening to us. That's why a nurse had to step in and lead from behind. As cancer patients know, one treatment often leads to the need for another. In this instance, narcotics have a constipating effect. Constipation causes other problems, so there was intense interest in Jim's bowel movements. Valentine's week, Jim was grappling with bone pain, headaches, reflux, and constipation. The resurgence of Jim's cancer dashed all of our hopes of a Valentine's Day discharge. Instead, helping Jim move his bowels became the project of the week. What a terrible change in plans. The team first prescribed Senna, a natural laxative. My husband's gastrointestinal system didn't even register that fall to all. Next, they gave him lactulose another nearly undetectable laxative. They moved on to a stronger evacuant called Miralax. That one at least got the attention of Jim's colon, but it remained stubbornly stoned. The narcotics were just too enjoyable. These laxatives were like little kids bothering their father while he was napping in a hammock. Come on, Dad, come play with us. Jim was starting to barf more because of all the backup in his system. When Miralax didn't work, things got serious. The resident came in wearing a hazmat suit, pushing a wheelbarrow, carrying a frighteningly large jug labeled with the best misnomer I've ever seen. Go lightly. By the way, just kidding on the hazmat suit and wheelbarrow. Go lightly was miserable stuff. Jim tried to drink it, but it made him barf more. At this point, he was so full of shit, everything made him barf. Enter stage left, fear of dehydration and damaged kidney function. Man, what a misery. 
trying to simultaneously help him shit, hydrate, manage the pain, and deal with all the other chemo side effects. Ugh, fuck all. Finally, on Valentine's Day, I'd reached the end of my rope. He hadn't pooped in days and was flirting with increased complications, so I started working on him like you would a constipated toddler. I got him unhooked from his IV leash and bent him widthwise over the hospital bed, the best substitute for an exercise ball. I started Operation Bowel Movement by massaging his back. Once he was relaxed, I gradually increased my pressure with the heels of my hands on his lower back and flanks. I just kept kneading and pressing and rolling my hands in a circular motion on his back and sides. Jim was doing his own work to move it all through internally, instructing me on what was most useful. After a while, he started to feel some progress, so we went into the shower. He crouched down while I kept working on his back. It was an exhausting evening. Finally, after what felt like hours of massaging and heaving and hoeing and yoga positioning, Jim gave birth to a massive pile of shit. Oh my God, we were so relieved. We both felt an incredible sense of accomplishment. With what little energy he had left, Jim cleaned up and crept back into his hospital bed. Equally exhausted, I crawled in next to him and snuggled up by his side. While many people were saying, I love you, over romantic dinners or sharing champagne and chocolates, Jim and I were expressing the truest love for each other over the delivery of a much-anticipated bowel movement. Salvage chemo. The water cannon. Not only were our hopes dashed for a February 14 discharge, the latest turn of events meant we needed to stay even longer. I had to retrieve the things I'd brought home and actually add a few more. As I said earlier, we didn't want the hospital to be our home or our new normal, but the whole situation was so depressing. I wanted to have things around that would cheer Jim up a little while I tended to his comfort. The lymphoblasts were staging an offensive in response to the first wave chemo assault. Their agitation caused a great deal of pain in Jim's bones. The seven days prior had been occupied with the agonizing process of trying to figure out the right mix of pain medicine. Too much made him dopey, not enough made him really uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, by the way, being a medical term for in excruciating pain. To combat the resurgence, Jim's oncologist wrote a prescription for a stronger chemo regimen. This new cycle was referred to as salvage chemo. That is not a word you want to hear when you are a patient. It's called salvage when your cancer is refractory, meaning it's not responding to the previous treatments. For Jim, this new chemo cocktail incorporated a drug called nalarabine. Nasty stuff. A couple days after his last treatment in the new cycle, the night nurse found Jim standing in front of the bathroom mirror. He didn't know how he got there. His mental state was terrifying. I'd ask him a simple question like, what day is today? He'd stare off without acknowledging me. After a few minutes, he'd say something like, what? And that was it. He was in this weird, somnolent state. He was totally out of it. I started to freak out. The explanations went round robin, with one doc blaming the opiates, another nurse said with certitude that it was hospital delirium. The oncologist seemed very reluctant to say it was the neurotoxicity from the nalarabine, which was the answer that made the most sense to me as Jim's primary observer. In Jim's medical records, it says his mental vacation was multifactorial. It was explained to me that if your kidneys aren't functioning well, the opiates can dam up, sitting in your system longer than normal. 
coupled with neurotoxicity from the chemo and his jumbled sense of time from being in the hospital for 39 days, I can understand that the physicians would be inclined to blame all those things. But I'd been with Jim the entire time. The only time he demonstrated this kind of loss of mental function came after he had a full course of nalarabine. I was really frustrated because it seemed the doctors were avoiding the fact that this drug was causing a neurotoxicity. I'd been in the hospital for 39 days as well, and I'd just about had it. I kept asking for Dr. X to come and see for herself what was happening. She called Jim's room and said she'd come up to see him, but she never did come to witness his drug-induced dementia. I finally asked her if she was avoiding us. She, of course, said no, but I wonder if her subconscious was driving that bus. I had very few public meltdowns in the hospital, but this was one of those times I became visibly frantic. I told the attending on rounds that Jim was acting like Jack Nicholson at the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know what? That attending cracked a smile. He caught himself and immediately adjusted his emotionless mask, rejoining the rest of the zookeepers. But I saw that smile, and it made a world of difference to me. Because in that moment, I knew he heard me, and that he was, in fact, a human being. I was so tired of being stared at day in and day out. I just wanted to hug this guy for showing emotion. To make matters worse, when the doctors came in, Jim rallied and somehow was able to answer their questions, albeit slowly, but he'd answer. It absolutely drove me out of my fucking tree. Still, I can't believe they didn't notice the profound difference in his cognitive abilities. Or maybe they did, but didn't want to freak me out? I'm not sure. All I know is that my husband was acting like he had had a lobotomy and no one seemed to be nearly as alarmed as I was. After struggling with everything we had struggled with, I was so hoping to get Jim home that week. It's no wonder so many elderly people loathe moving. Removing a person from their home of however many years effectively erases their life. It's profoundly destabilizing. The longer Jim was away from home, the more I could see him grasping to hold on to a feeling of selfhood. With this new complication, I was starting to worry that we'd never get there. I've said it before and I'll say it again. In our healthcare system, there is a big gap between treating the patient and treating the person. Picture a balance scale with one on each side. When you're in a hospital, especially a teaching hospital, the patient side of the scale is weighted, creating an imbalance. The longer one is in the hospital, the heavier the patient weight is, while the person side continually gets short shrift. If it stays that way too long, the person side starts to suffer in ways that can badly detract from the work that's being done on the patient side. Hospitalization becomes antithetical, treating the patient to death, so to speak. Certain things that keep a person healthy in regular life are simply not available while in the hospital. Basics like the comfort of your bed, your pets, your food, being able to do things for yourself like drive your car, do your dishes, wear your own clothes. These seemingly small familiarities help our brains map out our day-to-day -day living. Even just breathing outside air and being able to self-regulate your temperature are important things we take for granted. But they are the very things that make you a whole person and a large part of how you define yourself. Though this idea is acknowledged repeatedly by the doctors who want to get you home as well, their focus stays firmly on the patient and the disease. Just another one of those conversations I imagine the medical community engages in, but can't resolve on its own, so it gets shoved in a mental drawer somewhere, only to be reflected on while staring into one's coffee.
Thank you for listening to Promethean Project, Immortal Reckoning. For more information, visit my website at www.prometheanprojectamr.com. Stay tuned for Episode 8, where I take a break in the story to have a more in-depth discussion about pain management. A special note. The voicemail at the beginning of this episode was my dad, Salvatore Sanfilippo. I'm so glad I saved it. My father wasn't a big phone guy. I could probably count on two hands the number of times he called me over the years. I mean, we did talk on the phone, but it was my mother who initiated the calls. I was so touched when he broke out of his comfort zone to check in on us. He died of metastatic prostate cancer ten months after Jim passed away. I love you, Dad. I hope you're at peace.